And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for that wonderful reading. Join me now, and let's pray for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask now that you would help us to understand these words. Lord, the words that give life, the words from Scripture, the words that illuminate our darkened minds, that give us hope and strength in our weary hearts, that give us conviction in our souls so that we could be the men and women you call us to be. Father, it is such a joy and privilege to be able to communicate the word of God. But Lord, speak beyond my own sins, my own limitations, and my own pride. And I ask, oh God, that we would all sit at your feet with teachable hearts and open minds. Lord, this has been a very difficult week for our country. This has been a difficult time in our lives, and we pray that we can now turn to you through your word and be encouraged and equipped to be, Father, people of hope as you call us to be. Help us to do that now, and may this time in which we sit at your feet be filled with much joy and with much encouragement, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So uh, if you haven't noticed it uh, already, you definitely have noticed it by now since it's right up on the screen that the title of today's sermon is The Christian DTR, okay, the Christian DTR, and I know that some of you, maybe most of you are probably thinking like, oh boy, PJ's going to talk about DTRs, why is he talking about this topic, why did I come to church today, why is he talking about DTR, and the reason why you're probably thinking this is because, first of all, you may think you don't even need to hear this, because some of you are married, I know you're the minority here in this crowd, but most, you know, some of you are married, and so this idea of a DTR is kind of irrelevant to you, or For most of you, you're single and you're not in a relationship right now. And maybe this idea of a DTR is irrelevant. It's painfully irrelevant. Thanks for rubbing it in, Pastor John. Why is he talking about DTR? Well, hold off on just one moment, okay? Just in case those of you in here have no idea what I'm talking about, maybe you're, I don't know what to call you guys, relationally innocent or relationally inexperienced. You're like, what the heck is Pastor John talking about? What is a DTR? DTR stands for Defining the relationship, DTR, okay? It's sometimes, no, you guys are giggling, right? It's sometimes known as the talk that couples do when they're just a little bit unsure, a little bit confused about the status of their relationship that they're in with someone. You're like, uh, what are we? Are we friends with benefits? Are we just casually dating? Are we exclusive? Are we practically? What are we? You know, hence the need to define the relationship. So that is a DTR, right? That's what it means. Okay, so now you're asking, all right, why are you talking about this? Given the fact that most of us in here either A, don't need to hear this, we're already married, or we're single and we don't have a relationship and hence it doesn't seem like we even need to hear it. I'll tell you why. Learning how to do a DTR, specifically what I refer to as a Christian DTR, and I'll explain what that means later. 
Learning how to do a DTR, specifically a Christian DTR, is vital to living out your Christian faith. You see, what I hope to show you today is that DTRs are not just necessary for couples who need to figure out whether or not their relationship should continue or not. What I hope to show you also is that every Christian needs to learn how to do the DTR in order to determine whether or not certain relationships they already have with people should keep going or whether relationships they could have with other people should even start at all. You see, DTRs are not just important for couples, okay? It's important for every Christian because DTRs make couples relationally competent romantically, but it also helps Christian become relationally competent with other people generally. We're continuing our annual sermon series that we do at the beginning of every new year entitled Grow Up. And the purpose of this series is to take a look at the six core values that drive us as a church. Grow up, right? These are the core values that we feel drive us as a church. These are the things that enable us to live out our mission, which is to basically be a blessing to the world. Okay? And today, we're going to talk about the second core value of our church, which is relational competence. You see, the Bible teaches us that when you become a follower of Jesus, when you commit your life to Jesus, tremendous transformation occurs. And one specific area of transformation is the ability for us to determine whether or not certain relationships that we have with people should keep going or whether they should discontinue or if certain relationships that we could have with people should happen at all. Okay, and so to understand this concept, we're going to take a look at this passage in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to kind of see it as a case study in looking at this interaction between Jesus and this rich young man, this rich young ruler, in the hopes that as we look at this way of how Jesus does this DTR in this passage, we can learn from that and do that as well with the various people that we could be in relationship with or already are in relationship with. Okay, so with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this afternoon. First, why Christians need to learn the Christian DTR, okay, when Christians need to do the Christian DTR, and finally, why the Christian DTR is so important, okay, why we need to learn it, when we should do it, and why it's so important. Let's jump right in. First, why Christians need to learn the Christian DTR. Now, just to state the obvious here, when I'm talking about DTRs, I'm not referring to the, to the typical DTRs that couples do all the time to determine the nature of their relationship, right? No, I'm talking about specifically a Christian version of that, the Christian DTR. And the main difference between the Christian DTR and the DTR that we're all familiar with is, is that the Christian DTR applies to every single Christian regardless of their relational status. Let me explain what I mean. In the dating world, in the outside world, you know, outside of the church, a DTR is only relevant for unmarried couples who need to figure out what are we? What is the nature of our relationship, right? They need to figure out how to understand their relationship because there's a lot of uh, ambiguity. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, unspoken, nebulous assumptions that need to be clarified, right? Which means for married folks and for single people who want to stay single, it's just so unnecessary. It's irrelevant. But you can't say that about the Christian DTR because the Christian DTR applies to every Christian, whether you're married, single, or dating. Why? Well, to answer that question, let's take a look at our passage for today. Can we have our passage up there, please? And the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this interaction between Jesus and this person, this young man, is how it ends. How does this guy respond to Jesus' invitation to, quote, follow me, which is Jesus' way of saying, hey, have a relationship with me. How does this man respond to this offer of Jesus of having a relationship with him? What does he do? He walks away, right? 
Basically, he says through his actions, no, thank you. I want nothing to do with you. You know, I reject you. Basically, he's rejecting Jesus' offer for a relationship with him. Why? Why does he reject Jesus? Verse 21 tells us, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus has just stated to this man that in order for them to have a relationship, it requires this man to give all that he have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow him, okay? Now, I'm going to come back to this requirement in just a moment in my next point, but the thing that I want to focus on for just a moment is what Jesus did right before he told this man this requirement of giving to the poor. What does the text tell us Jesus did right before he told this man to give everything away? Do you remember? What does it say? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Before Jesus and this man were in a relationship, right, before he even told this man what it would be required for them to be in a relationship, what did Jesus already do? He already loved this man. What does that tell us? It tells us that even though there was a requirement for this man to be in relationship with Christ, there was no requirement whatsoever for this man to be loved by Christ. Let me say that again. Even though there was a requirement for this man to have a relationship with Christ, there was no requirement that he had to meet in order to first be loved by Christ. Jesus loved this man. Now, I know that word love is so ambiguous in our culture, and so we can't really sometimes understand what the Bible teaches us when it says so-and-so loved this person, or like in this case, Jesus loved this person. And so, to help us decipher that, let me read to you what one New Testament scholar by the name of James Brooks, how he explains Jesus' love here. Listen to what he says in his commentary. I have it up there. He says this, quote, The word loved in the present context refers to something more than embrace, attraction, or affection. It refers to genuine love based on need and not merit or response. End quote. In other words, Jesus loved this man the way parents love their children. You know sometimes how parents will love their kids no matter how unattractive, no matter how unintelligent, and how untalented their kids are, right? That's just the way a parent's love is. It doesn't matter if their child is not very pretty or not very smart or very talented. Parents, by nature, love their kids. Why? Because parents, by nature, love their kids unconditionally. And that's the love this Jesus had for this man. He loved this man unconditionally. In fact, that's the same love Jesus has for you. In fact, it's that same love, that unconditional love, that made you a Christian in the first place. You don't believe me? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Starting in the 15th verse, I have it up there. Listen to what the Apostle John says. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Your attention, please. The Apostle John has just told us, first of all, that when you receive God's unconditional love through Jesus, you become a Christian. But what else happens as a result of that? When you become a Christian because you receive God's unconditional, what else happens? He says it in verse 17. You live like Jesus lived here in this world. When you receive God's unconditional love, you live the way Jesus lived his life on earth. Here's the question. If Jesus lived his life on this earth, loving people unconditionally, even people who would reject him and want nothing to do with him like this man ultimately does, does that not teach us that's how we are to love people as well? 
If Jesus walked on this earth loving people without condition, all right, with no requirement for them to meet, he just loved them unilaterally, isn't that how God expects us to live as his followers, right? Indeed, that is the way God calls us to love, which means this is why you need to learn the Christian DTR. You need to love people unconditionally, okay? Now, when I say that, I don't mean that you are to be in relationship with people unconditionally. Loving people unconditionally and being in relationship with people unconditionally are not the same thing. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought they were. What's the difference? What's the difference between loving someone unconditionally but... Being in relationship with someone unconditionally, aren't they the same? No, they're not. And to help distinguish the two, let me read you a quote from a great book entitled Friendship at the Margin. Listen to how this author helps us understand the difference between those two ideas. Listen to what he says. Quote, Jesus calls his disciples friends rather than servants because of shared commitments and purpose. The love that Jesus commands his friends to have is the love that he is about to show them. No one has greater love than this, he explains, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus offers us friendship. A grateful response to God's gift of friendship involves offering that same gift to others, whether family or strangers, coworkers or children who live on the street. End quote. What is this guy saying? He's saying this. God does not command you. Okay? He does not obligate you to be in relationships with people unconditionally. Okay? But he does command us to love people unconditionally. He commands us basically to always be willing to offer the opportunity to be in relationship with people unconditionally. He commands us to always be open to the possibility that we can have a relationship with someone unconditionally. That's what it means to love unconditionally. Christian, hear me when I say this. I want you to understand this really well. You do not have the option to not be open to the possibility of having a friendship or relationship of any kind with someone simply because that person doesn't meet certain criteria or certain conditions, okay? In other words, you can never say as a Christian, I'm never going to be open to being friends with someone who isn't heterosexual. I'm never open to the idea of never being friends, uh, of, of not being a friend to someone who doesn't share the same political views that I do. I'm not open to ever being friends with someone who doesn't share the same ideology that I do. You don't have that quote-unquote luxury to discriminate who you are open and willing to have the opportunity of befriending. You don't have that opportunity, Christian. You don't have the, the, the privilege, if you even want to call it that, of saying, I will only be friends with you if you are a Christian or if you're Korean or put it negatively, or I'll never be friends with someone who's maybe gay or who's a Muslim or who thinks abortion is okay, or someone who who loves Trump or hates Trump, you know? You cannot make that kind of discrimination. God teaches us that you need to always be open to the possibility that God might bring someone into your life who is completely unlike you to where you're willing to offer the opportunity of being that person's friend, of being in relationship with them. Listen, if you think that closing yourself off to the possibility of being in relationship with someone simply because they don't meet certain conditions, even conditions that you think are biblical, and because of that you're pleasing God, let me tell you now, you're not pleasing God. You are dishonoring God, in fact. Let me say that again. If you think that closing yourself off to the possibility of being someone's friend or being in relationship with someone simply because they don't meet certain conditions, even conditions that you think are biblical, and by doing so, you are honoring God, you're not honoring God. You are dishonoring him, okay? 
Scripture makes it clear, Jesus shows us here by his own example, that we are to love people unconditionally. Okay? We need to always be open to the possibility and always offer the opportunity of being friends with someone who may be very different from us, who may think very different from us, and have different values from us. Okay? Now, with that said, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because when I say to you that God calls us to love people unconditionally, I'm not saying, again, God calls us to be in relationship with people unconditionally. Because what we're about to see, that is actually not true. Okay? God may call us to love people unconditionally, but he does not call us to have relationships with people unconditionally. And to show you about more of this, let me go to my next point. When Christians need to do the Christian DTR. If you ever Googled the phrase, define the relationship, or just DTR, you're going to come across articles with titles like 17 signs it's time to define the relationship, or signs that it's now time to do a DTR with the person that you're dating. And all these articles talk about when it's time, when, when indicators are clear that it's time to define the relationship with someone, to have that talk, right? Maybe when people start getting jealous, when, maybe when family members start asking questions, right? But the question that I have for you is, when is it appropriate for a Christian to do the Christian DTR? What are the warning signals? What what are the indicators that it's now time to define the relationship from a Christian standpoint with various relationships? Well, let me read to you verse 17 to 18 to answer that question. Read again what it says there as I read it out loud. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this is interesting. Because here we have just found out that this man who ultimately rejects Jesus' offer for a relationship, turns out he actually wanted a relationship with Jesus initially. He's the one who ran up to Jesus. He's the one who asked for a relationship with Christ. In fact, he specifically wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. How do I know this? Because the way he's talking and the way he's behaving really fits the profile of a person seeking to be a disciple of a great teacher. Let me read to you uh, New Testament scholar Craig Keener as he verifies this. He says this in his commentary. A pious man customarily sought out his own teacher. A man of wealth could normally find the best or most popular teacher for himself. For a man of wealth to bow before a teacher indicated tremendous respect. We know that at least some disciples asked their teachers questions like this rich man asked Jesus. And So clearly, this guy is not seeking to just ask this one question and then completely bounce and leave and never deal with Jesus again. No, this guy wants a long-term relationship with Christ. Specifically, he wants to have a discipling relationship with Christ where he is the disciple, Jesus is his teacher. He is wanting to hear those very words in verse 21 coming out of Jesus' mouth. Come, follow me. He wants to hear that. Okay, and again, what I said in my first point tells us that Jesus was more than willing. He was more than open to the idea because, again, in verse 21, it says he looked at him and he loved him. But there's an issue, an issue that Jesus cannot ignore, an issue that spurns within him a need to do a Christian DTR. And the question is, what is this issue that Jesus has a problem with to where he feels the need to define the relationship? Well, it all centers on this idea of God's goodness. Let me explain. What does this guy call Jesus as soon as he runs up to him? How does he refer to Jesus? What does he call him? Good teacher, right? Now, on the surface, it seems like a very nice, formal way of greeting someone. It even sounds like a nice compliment. And you would imagine that Jesus would be flattered by it. 
he would accept it and he would be very happy that this man refers to him as good teacher. And yet that is the far opposite reaction that happens. How does Jesus react? What does he say to him? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That is a weird reaction coming from Jesus. It is not what we're expecting, right? This situation is causing Jesus to rebuke this man, right? Why? Why does Jesus rebuke this man for calling him a good teacher? Because according to Jesus, no one is good except God alone. But wait a minute, Jesus, aren't you God? (laughs) Aren't you God in the flesh? Aren't you Emmanuel, God with us? Aren't you actually the King of kings, Lord of lords? Aren't you God? So why are you rebuking this man for calling you good teacher when in fact you are God himself? Here's why. Yes, it is true. Jesus is God, right? He is God. But the problem is, this guy doesn't know that Jesus is God. He doesn't know that. As far as he's concerned, Jesus is just any average teacher that he could go to for discipleship, right? He's just like him. He's just like another human being, right? And by calling Jesus good, when in his mind he thinks that Jesus is not God, what does that tell us about this man's view of God? This man's view of God is diminished. It's inferior. He has a low view of God, evidenced by the fact that he's willing to flippantly use a term that's only reserved for God and apply it to somebody who, in his mind, isn't God at all, even though accidentally he happens to be God. Do you guys see that? Right? You guys understand what's going on here? Right? Jesus doesn't have a problem with this man referring to him as God, but that's not what this man is saying about Jesus. What he's saying, actually, is that I have a very inferior view of God. I have a low view of God because I'm willing to share and be promiscuous with a terminology that's only reserved for God and use it for anyone that I just want to get close to, okay? That's wrong. And because of that, Jesus cannot follow through on his initial offer to this guy of being in a relationship with. Why? In the ancient world, the relationship between a disciple and a teacher was such that The views of the disciples with everything in life, including a disciple's view of God, had to be identical to the teacher's view of life and of God, okay? Whenever a disciple was attached to a teacher, that disciple thought and act just like his teacher so that whenever someone came up to, you know, a disciple and says, who are you a disciple of? I am a disciple of Marcus, or I'm a disciple of Timothy, or I'm a disciple of Jesus. That's all you needed to say, and they would know exactly what you believed, what you thought about life, and what you thought about God, right? Because the assumption was a disciple had an identical view of life, an identical view of God as his teacher, which means in order for Jesus and this man to have the kind of relationship that he wanted, Jesus would neither, either have to lower his view of God to match this disciple's low view of God, or the disciple would need to elevate his view of God to match Jesus' high view of God. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in verse 21. When he tells this man... Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Jesus is trying to challenge this man by saying, look, your view of God and my view of God do not match. I have a very high view of God, right? You need to elevate your view of God to match mine. That's how we can have this disciple-teacher relationship, okay? You need to have a higher view of God. You need to have a higher commitment to God, a higher loyalty to God, a higher devotion to God that matches my loyalty, my commitment, my devotion, right? And what does the guy do when Jesus gives this challenge? He walks away. He walks away. Let me ask you, what does this man's action communicate 
to Jesus and to us with regards to his expectation towards Jesus. It tells us this. This man was only willing to have a relationship with Jesus if Jesus diminished his view of God. He was only willing to have a relationship with Christ if Christ would have a lower commitment, a lower loyalty, a lower devotion to God to match his low view and loyalty and devotion to God. You see? And friends, that is when Jesus knew that he needed to do a DTR. And that's when you need to do a DTR with your various relationships or potential relationships. Listen, chances are someone coming up to you and being like, uh, Timothy, can I be your disciple? It's probably not going to happen. Sorry, Timmy. <laughs> you know, no one's going to come up to you and say, Sudabi, can I be your follower? Can I be your disciple? It's probably not going to happen, right? It's just probably not going to happen. If they do, please come talk to me and let me talk to that person because it talk some sense into them. But people today don't go up to other people and say, can I be your disciple? And because that's the case, Christians who they're in relationship, you guys don't need to have the same view of God as that other person who wants to be in relationship with you because they're not your disciple. That's not necessary, okay? But hear me when I say this. There will be moments in your life, if it hasn't happened already, where certain people who you either could be in relationship with or already are in relationship may expect or even demand that you diminish your loyalty, tone down your commitment to Christ in order to have a relationship with them or maintain a relationship with them. And when that time comes, that's when you need to be firm and clear with what your relationship to them will look like and what it cannot look like, okay? Where you would say something like, look, I would like to be your friend, Or I would like to stay friends with you. Or you could say something like, look, I would like to work for you. Or I would like to still work for you. But please, just as I don't put conditions on you in order for us to have a relationship, please extend the same courtesy to me by not putting conditions on me, by expecting me to diminish my commitment to God, my loyalty to God, and my utter commitment to live for Him. Okay? Because stuff like that will happen if it hasn't happened to you already. It will happen. So, for example, let me just give you some real examples anonymously. Let's say, you know, your best friend from elementary school just got engaged. He proposed to his girlfriend. He's a non-Christian. And he's named you best man, right? And you know he's the kind of guy where he wants a bachelor party filled with strippers, okay? And you're the best man, which means you're responsible to put that party together. What do you do? Christian, you do a Christian DTR, and you define your relationship with them. Or let's say you're interviewing for a job, and your interviewer is your potential new boss, and you just get your boss, and your boss gets you, your potential boss, right? And you guys click, and you have synergy, and you just think alike, and all your creative juices and harmonization just come out in that interview. And it's so clear to everybody in the room that you guys must be working together. I mean, this kind of uh, serendipitous chemistry never happens, right? And you just feel it, and you know this job was made for you, and he was the perfect boss made for you, right? And yet he tells you at the end of the interview, look, you know you should work here. You know I need to be your boss, but I got to tell you. If you want me to be your boss, I just got to let you know that you have to be willing to play with the numbers a little bit. Because if we had to pay the taxes that we're legally obligated to pay, man, we will not survive. We will not make it to next quarter. What do you say? What do you say, Christian? (laughs) You have to say, can we just do a Christian DTR right now? (laughs) That's what you should say. (laughs) Don't say that. They're not going to. But you know what I mean, right? You need to do a DTR. Listen. 
God calls us to love people unconditionally, which means he calls us to always be willing to offer the opportunity of being in relationship with people unconditionally. But he does not call us, God does not call us to be in relationship with people unconditionally. Yes, love people unconditionally to where you're open to the possibility of a relationship with someone. But no, do not be open of being in relationship with someone unconditionally. Why? Why is that so important to Christ? Well, to explain, let me go to my final point. Why the Christian DTR is so important. If you ever read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one of the things you easily pick up right away is how much Jesus gets so annoyed at religious leaders. I mean, he just does not like religious leaders. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, you know, the high priest council. He really doesn't like these folks. Why? Well, let me read to you a story that Jesus tells in Luke 18 because it actually tells us in the story why he doesn't like religious leaders. It says this, starting in verse 9, that Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even to lift his eyes up to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there are two things that I want to draw your attention to in this story. First of all, notice how this Pharisee, this religious leader, how intolerant, viciously intolerant he is towards the tax collector, right? And what gives him a sense of justification to do that? He starts saying, God, I obeyed this law. I obeyed your law here. I obeyed this law there. I've obeyed, obeyed, obeyed. And because of that, it gives him a sense of entitlement to look down and to be vicious and judgmental and intolerant towards his tax collector, right? Second thing to notice, however is that God favors the tax collector. He doesn't favor the Pharisee. He rejects the Pharisee. He wants nothing to do with the Pharisee. Now, with that in mind, let's have our own passage for today back up there. Right? Let's have Mark's passage up there for a moment. Take a look at this guy, this man. Does he look like anyone familiar? He looks like the Pharisee in Luke 18, right? Because basically he's saying, you know, Jesus from youth, I've obeyed this commandment, I've obeyed that commandment, I've obeyed this commandment, I've obeyed this commandment ever since my youth, right? He fits the profile of the kind of person that God would not want anything to do with, right? He fits that self-righteous, religious person that Jesus could not stand. And yet we come back to that verse, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. Jesus loved him. What does that tell us? It tells us that the God of the Bible, Jesus, is the most tolerant person of all. Let me say that one more time. The God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, is the most tolerant person of all. Do you guys remember what Jesus was praying to the Father as people were literally killing him by crucifying him on the cross? Do you remember what the Father heard coming out of the lips of Jesus, what Jesus was saying about these men who were actually crucifying him. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Let me ask you guys, 
How many of you would tolerate people who not only think differently from you, but would actually kill you because they think differently from you? Would you tolerate them? Would you even pray for God to forgive them? (laughs) Probably not. And yet that is what Jesus does. Jesus is the most tolerant person ever. And why is Jesus the most tolerant person ever? Well, I mentioned it in my first point. Because he loves us unconditionally. Jesus loves us unconditionally. But the thing I didn't tell you in my first point is, how is Jesus able to love us so unconditionally? How is God able to love us with no strings attached like that? How can he love us so unconditionally? Do you guys know? It's always the answer I come back to at the end of each sermon, right? It's the gospel, right? It is the gospel. The Bible teaches us that the only way the holy God of the universe can have a deep, loving relationships with people is if people are morally perfect. That's the only way the holy God of the universe can have fellowship with human beings. Those human beings must be morally perfect. He cannot have a relationship with someone who is morally imperfect. Okay? In fact, he has to punish, he has to judge, he has to condemn people who are morally imperfect. But therein lies a problem because the Bible tells us that every single human being, including all of us in here, we're all morally imperfect. We're all broken sinners. And this is something that even is recognized in our cultural euphemism, right? Haven't you heard that phrase, to err is human? I mean, being morally imperfect is so embedded in our cultural consciousness that we even have phrases like that to show that we are all morally imperfect, right? What do we do? This is why the gospel is such good news. Because the gospel goes on to say that God, even though he had every right to just cut us out of his life, he was not content in doing that. God wants a relationship with us, right? So he has to do something. What does he do? He becomes a man. He becomes Jesus. And what does he do as Jesus? He lives his entire human existence as a morally perfect person. He becomes the only morally perfect human being. And what else does he do? He dies on the cross for the full penalty of human sin, for the full penalty of human imperfection. So that if you have faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you repent of your sins, which basically means you become his disciple, he becomes your teacher, there's this great exchange, right? All the moral perfection of Christ that he lived gets credited to you, and all of the moral imperfections that you did throughout your life gets credited to his death on the cross. And as a result, you now have a status before God that justifies him to love you unconditionally. Because the conditions for him to love you like this have been met when Jesus died on the cross as your substitute savior. That is the gospel. And it's because of that gospel, God is able to love us unconditionally. That is, he is always willing to be open to the possibility of having a relationship with anyone unconditionally. Okay? God is always open to the possibility. He's always willing to offer the opportunity of being in relationship with anyone unconditionally. And I really mean anyone. Okay? But with that said, be careful. Don't take that too far. Don't misunderstand. Yes, God is willing to love us unconditionally. He's open to having a relationship with anyone unconditionally. But that doesn't mean he will have a relationship with someone unconditionally. Why? What are the conditions to have a relationship with Christ? You need to repent of your sins, right? Why, Pastor John? Is that a condition we have to meet in order for God to be willing to have a relationship with us? No. When we repent of our sins, what are we doing? You know what we're doing? 
We are telling God by repenting of our sins that, God, I don't put any conditions on you with regard to this relationship. Specifically, I will not expect you, God, to lower your standards of holiness. I will not expect you to be less holy than you are in order to have a relationship with me. I will not ask you to be less of a Lord in my life in order to have... That is what repentance is. It is us telling the Lord that we will not put conditions on God specifically by asking God to lower his holiness, to diminish his standards in any way, but that we let him be Lord of all, holiest of all, and the ruler of all, right? Some people confuse this idea like, oh, yeah, God loves us unconditionally, but he makes us repent. So isn't our salvation based on our works by us repenting? No. That's not God putting a condition on you. That's you saying, I don't put conditions on you, God. That's what you're saying, okay? Do you understand that now? So with that all in mind, let me now remind you of something else. In the second point, I said that in the ancient world, a disciple and a teacher had to think exactly the same way. They had to believe in the same things and behave in the same manner. Here's the thing. If your teacher, Christian, is the most tolerant person of all and you are his disciple, what does that mean you are to be? Doesn't it? mean that you are to be the most tolerant person of all as well? Isn't that what that says? Right? Which means if someone tells you, hey, if you want to have a friendship with me or if you want to maintain this working relationship, you need to diminish your loyalty to God, do you know what they're actually telling you to do? They're telling you to be less like Christ. And if you are less like Christ and Christ is the most tolerant person of all, they're also asking you to be less tolerant. Right? Friends, listen, you will have people in your life who will say, look, if you want to have a friendship with me, or if you still want to work for me, or if you would like to work for me, or if you would like to be friends with me, right, you need to tamper down this whole Jesus talk. You need to lower your, your commitment to Jesus because I don't, I don't jive with that. And that might even say something like, if you don't do that, you're not tolerating me. You're being intolerant towards me. Let me tell you right now, that is absolutely not true. It's them being intolerant towards you, not you being intolerant towards them. In fact, if you give in to their relational demands, if you give in to those relational conditions that they say in order for you to maintain that friendship, maintain that working relationship, maintain that relationship in general, you're not becoming more tolerant. You're becoming less tolerant. Think about it. If Jesus agreed to the conditions that this man wanted and lowered his devotion to God to the level of this guy... What would happen to Jesus? Who would he be intolerant towards? Do you know who he would be intolerant towards? The same people the rich man was intolerant towards. Who was he intolerant towards? The poor, right? The needy, the refugee, the homeless, the orphan. If Jesus agreed to have this relationship to by lowering his commitment to, Christ, his, to God, the Father, having the same standards of religion that this man had, Jesus would not tolerate the poor, the needy, the very same people that this man Jesus is challenging to pour into and to serve, to give all your wealth towards. Jesus will never do that because he's the most tolerant of all. And that's why you can't do that because he calls you to be tolerant like him. Do you guys see that? Do you guys understand that? This is my hope. I hope that this culture doesn't make you look like a fool, specifically in this way. I don't want you 
to think that you're more tolerant and you end up becoming more intolerant. Please, please do not become an intolerant person under the false rubric of being more tolerant because the fact of the matter is if we give in to these relational conditions that people will have as it pertains to our ultimate devotion, ultimate commitment to God, we will not be tolerant as they claim that we will be. We will be less tolerant. And I got to tell you, I'm sure you've been watching the news lately. We have seen how ugly society gets and how it's getting even more ugly when people become intolerant, how toxic society gets, how mean-spirited people become, how evil people can be because of intolerance. As God's people, we're not supposed to add to that. We're supposed to fight against that. We're supposed to go against that by being tolerable like our Lord and Savior, like our teacher. We are his disciples. The joy and the hope that Christians are to bring in this world, part of it is attributed to the fact that we are so relationally competent that we can discern what true tolerance is and what false tolerance is, which really is intolerance. What is going to be your charge? What is going to be your commitment, Christian? Are you going to be committed to Christ so that you can be more tolerant and more of a blessing to those around you? Or are you going to be duped? Are you going to be fooled into thinking you're tolerant when, in fact, you've become less tolerant and added to the vitriol, the evil, and the bitterness that we see happening in our society today? I pray that you will choose the former, not the latter. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about what this text teaches us specifically, what it teaches us about what we are called to do and who we're to be like, Father, I pray, especially now in these times where there's so much confusion about what true tolerance is and what false tolerance is, that we would be able to distinguish the two so that instead of adding more hate, instead of adding more bitterness, instead of adding more violence, We can bring peace and be peacemakers. We can bring hope and be called children of God. We can be tolerant and be like our Lord and Savior Jesus and therefore show the one who is the hope of this world. Father, we are living under very strenuous times right now where intolerance is gaining momentum and it just seems like it's not stoppable. Lord, I pray that you would intervene and use your people through the power of the Holy Spirit as it is mediated through the preaching of the gospel, that we will become people who are tolerant, kind, and like Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing the one who is the hope of this world. Help us to do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today or if this is not your home church, please do not give. But to our members, let's give God his tithes and our offerings.